Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hi, everyone, and welcome to Confessions of a Debut Novelist with me, your host, Chloe Timms. This week, I'm talking to Abigail Bergstrom about her literary novel, What a Shame. Abigail has worked in publishing for over a decade as an agent and an editor, with 34 of her titles making the bestseller list. She's now the founder of Bergstrom Studio, a publishing consultancy firm supporting emerging writers. As an industry insider, Abigail's perspective on being a debut is well worth a listen, and we also talked about topics such as using the second person point of view, cutting through millennial stereotypes, and carving out creative space to write. But first, here's Abigail with an excerpt from What a Shame. At first, there was drama and morbid excitement, all the morose trimmings that come with the early stages of mourning and grief. People came over. They brought pre-cooked food wrapped and marinated in flavours, flowers from the fancy florist and other small, appropriate gifts. They wore black respectfully to both of your funerals. Dark, smart clothing on a grey day to a brutalist crematorium and dark, sullen moods to a flat we one shared where remnants of your dead skin were still in the carpet. Now that you're both gone, I'm struggling to decipher which thread of grief belongs to each of you. It's a wiry, tangled mass in my chest, like those metal scourers you use to scrub stubborn pans. Each coarse steel strand is more tightly coiled than the last, and when a mass tightly in your hand, it's soft to touch. Only when a single strand frays loose is it sharp and painful. I think that's why it's easier to keep you both matted together. After your elusive departure, my friends pretended they didn't have plans for the week that that followed. They came over with wine, people fussed over me, and when I sat down at a table, there always seemed to be a spare seat where you would have sat. A sign now for my misery, so plain to see as if it were wearing a large red hat. At the beginning, grief and tragedy are ripe dinner party fodder. It's much easier to emphasise with the unpleasantness of a recent tragedy. Proximity to the present is the real marrow. Lurking in the corner of your reality, you feel it in the room, and the fear is that it could could decide to pick you next. In order to preserve yourself, you must hold it up in your hands and acknowledge its very horribleness. Tell someone about it in a bid for it to stay far away from you for as long as possible. Because pain gets us all in the end, doesn't it? We all must suffer eventually. The only question is when. I'm relieved when they stop asking me how I'm feeling, leaving me to indulge myself under a cloak of shame. 
Much unlike horror, the best way to prevent shame from attaching itself to you is by ignoring it entirely. Better in than out. Breakups and deaths are commonplace, and you're accustomed to the rituals surrounding them. You watch them in films, you read about them in books, the retellings of an old, timeless narrative in which one etches out one's humanity. You know what to do with the anguish that immediately seeps from an ending, sudden or slow. You have been taught. It's the ongoing and ebbing sadness that continues afterwards that we all find a little dull. Unworthy of a story, perhaps. Hi, Abigail. Welcome to the podcast. I'm really happy to have you on with me today to discuss your debut novel, What a Shame. Oh, thank you so much for having me. Yeah, I'm thrilled to be here. So can you start by introducing your novel for us and telling us what What a Shame is all about? I guess What a Shame, um, in essence, is about the kind of utter devastation of heartbreak and grief. Um, The lead protagonist, Matilda, is kind of going through a very sudden and shocking breakup. And she's also grieving for the loss of um, a parent, her father. And this kind of process is unraveling her and she's sort of coming undone. And you go on this journey as she seeks to kind of unpick what's happened to her really and why she isn't coping and how these two sort of great losses are sort of tangled up in one another um so yeah it's about grief it's about shame um at its heart yeah and she does go to quite extreme lengths to get over this grief this loss and goes on quite a spiritual journey which we'll talk about in a bit but I was wondering where the idea came from if you had a a kind of sudden moment of inspiration or um, it was it was a, a slower process than that. Where did the idea come from? Um, I think it was, yeah, it was definitely a slower process than that. I mean, I started, I don't think I was like consciously writing a novel when I started this book. Um, I had sort of siphoned off Saturday mornings and I would just get up and sit and just write for fun because I, you know, working as an agent and an editor, you give a lot of your sort of creativity away and you give a lot Mm. of ideas away and, you know, you're constantly working collaboratively with other writers, which I love and I feel like I really thrive in that dynamic, but I was operating at a rate that I knew I was going to burn out, which I did, (laughs) but I was operating at a rate where I knew if I didn't carve out a space for myself, for my own creativity, for my own writing, for no other reason than for it to just exist, that I was going to kind of dry up. So it was it was for the joy. And I think I started writing kind of short stories and little fiction pieces. And then these themes came out, you know, these themes around shame, certainly, and um, grief and female friendship. Um, and then the story sort of evolved that way. So I'm working on my second one now. And I think the way that I went about it was certainly messier. It was like a messier one because I, I didn't consciously sit down and plot out the story first. And the coming together of the story was sort of unfurling. Um, but yeah, that's that's the answer really in terms of how the idea came to me. Do you think you're more of someone that starts with a character then rather than an idea? You'll just kind of have this person in your head and you just start writing around them I don't know actually no I would say I'm more um thematic writer yeah thematic and like the story like what's going to be the kind of the interesting thing or the gritty thing or the devastating thing 
Um, and yeah, the themes, the themes as well, I think. And then the characters come and, and are born out of that. I think Matilda certainly came later and as the writing went on and the book developed, her voice and her as a character like evolved and got stronger and stronger. But I don't think that was the like bit for me that pulled me through. Mm. Tell us a little bit then about what well, we're talking themes. Let's talk about shame because uh, obviously that the title, What a Shame. Can you tell us about what part shame then plays in the story I suppose in terms of the story it's about and what I wanted to write about is the shame that women live with and exist in every day like the shame that is so ubiquitous it's so everywhere and all-consuming and so normalized that we don't even notice it but it's so uh definitive and overwhelming it's kind of like this prickly heat under our skin that we're constantly having to navigate it in and around and I think I just found from having you know so many conversations with friends but even you know colleagues or just women that you meet you know be it like a like a literary festival I remember having an incredible conversation with another writer about this kind of experience and feeling of shame and I felt like whilst shame was being talked about and explored more widely in like different facets of society and in, in a more obvious way the kind of um under the skin prickly heat shame that we we exist in that wasn't being talked about or explored so much and I think it's hard to put words to so that in essence was the kind of inspiration for for that yeah yeah I think it's that undercurrent like you say it's it's not a it's the obvious obvious to us perhaps but perhaps not explored so much in fiction where it's more subtle in that way yeah and obviously grief plays a huge part in the novel as we've mentioned Matilda's lost her dad and she's just had a, a quite intense breakup as well and th- I love the way you describe grief and loss in this novel it's very much like a haunting there's a kind of spiritual element to it as well and Matilda's very worried about being cursed and, you know, she then goes on on this journey, like we've said about uh, how to kind of resolve her grief. So I was wondering how you approach this kind of otherworldly element to her, to her attempts to cure herself. Yeah. Um, so the approach to that, I suppose, the, uh, the, the fun in that was writing a sceptical character who was really sceptical <laughs> of these ideas, you know, of tarot she does a spiritual banishing bath um yeah she has her cards read she she goes on a trip and drinks ayahuasca which is one of the most powerful hallucinogenics that the world has to offer and so yes yeah, st- the starting point of this character who you know she sort you know she calls reiki fakey and she's really not sure and not interested but she kind of gets pushed into these things by the, the women around her the the the, the friends around her um, and they were an interesting group. I think I didn't want to write about that. I don't know. I, I think even the way that female friendship, I suppose, is represented in box sets and on our TV screens and often mm. in books is so unrealistic and unobtainable. These kind of four women ride or die no matter what for all of your life and everything you go through. And I just think female friendship is um so different to that in actuality and our experiences of it are so these kind of women are thrown together in this house share in a way that's quite jarring and they're kind of not expecting to have been 
that there at that point in their life they all had ex- different expectations in terms of where they should be and I guess there's shame wrapped up in that as well and these friends sort of can see that there is something that there's something it's like you know this dark cloud over Matilda something that she's not dealing with and it's explored through the lens of grief it's explored through the lens of this idea of a curse Mm. and they're the ones that are kind of pushing her into these spiritual new age rituals and remedies and encouraging her to kind of go inwards and look at what's really happening um so they were really fun to write about and really fun to research as well um but I also think you know, I personally feel that our relationship with spirituality now is quite complicated and also indeed problematic. And there has been a rise in um, modern day spirituality, witchcraft, our interest is, you know, from moon phases um, to uh, crystals, you you know, there's a whole kind of um, cultural explosion happening around these things and people are using them to heat to heal you know as a salve for I think the kind of difficult painful existential truths of life that we can't cope with and that's incredibly hard to um to to survive and I think that the novel's kind of grappling with this question of like is there any spiritual intervention happening in these things, you know, in these things, or or are they purely psychosomatic and Mm. it's all in our head? And actually, if they bring us some solace and some peace, to what extent does it matter? Mm. And and so there's a range of characters, some who are a lot more kind of woo-woo, shall we say, like Eden, <laughs> Matilda's friend, who's like kind of very susceptible to these things and goes to see a voodoo priestess and is the one that informs Matilda that she's sort of been cursed, um, you know, all the way through to Matilda or indeed Constance, uh, who's another relationship and character in the intergenerational friendship in the book, who again is, you know, not so taken by these ideas and is mm. a little bit seasoned should we say <laughs> yes definitely so I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about your use of second person in the novel because as we mentioned Matilda's going through two big losses in her life and there are sections of the novel where she talks to you and she touches on the relationship with her father but also the relationship with her ex-boyfriend um, and it's quite an unusual voice to take and there are times where you switch between who she's talking to that makes the reader think, okay, who who's she referring to here? But obviously that the loss is similar in some ways because it's they were both so significant in her life. So can you talk about your use of the second person? Mm, yeah. I knew that was gonna be one of the more kind of controversial decisions in terms of the the book. Um, I'm a, I'll, I'll put my hat in the ring and say I'm a huge fan of second person. So Okay, great. <laughs> yeah, I I think, yeah, I think if it's done well, I think it it can be really interesting. I do understand why readers also find it annoying. And I think uh, my application of it, the, the confusion was kind of the point. So she's so bound up in the, as I said, the kind of the utter destruction and grief of having suddenly lost somebody who she thought she was sharing the rest of her life with and having suddenly lost her father. And these things are so kind of enmeshed and tangled up and she's struggling to decipher kind of what thread of of pain belongs to whom, Mm. where. And 
and I think the I think that is um rings true to the experience of grief in real life and I wanted the reader to kind of share in that kind of confusion in that moment of like wait a minute who who are you talk who is she talking about like which is this mm. about her father or is this about her boyfriend or and and for them to kind of be in her shoes in having that disorientation um and then it's the kind of the you is taken out more widely to the kind of the patriarch and kind of um the infliction of this shame and this violence inflicted on women by men in society as well so it kind of takes on another um another role I wanted to speak a little bit about your the way you write kind of your observations about life and you've got such a beautiful way with words particularly when you were writing about the pain of a breakup and there's a a particular passage I'm thinking of where Matilda's saying how at the beginning of a breakup you can have these little anecdotes which are kind of comedic and then you let them sink in and they become very heavy and you start to dwell on that influence that person's had on your life and she says at one point she feels as if her ex is woven into the fabric of her and I just thought that was such a astute way of describing a breakup so I was wondering whether these kind of observations come to you very naturally at the beginning of your writing or are they are, are those kind of passages formed in the redrafting and the the work on the line level when you're writing mm, that's a good question um I think with the more emotive stuff um I'm yeah I'm kind of my head's going to the book that I'm writing now and the kind of emotion that I'm having to go into there in in a, in a similar way I think those are the like rare moments that we all have in our writing of just like flashes where it's just it's mm. coming so seamlessly and it's and it's pouring out and there's I don't know you're kind of tapping into the well of yourself and your own lived um, pain or emotion or experience and it's you know definitely not um, in line with the same story that you're telling but I think in order to capture that pain and make it visceral and make it real you are you know you are tapping into your own kind of understand your own kind of emotional compass if you will um, and I often found that after after writing those kind of scenes, you know, you'd spend the afternoon having having spent the morning writing, and you spend the rest of the afternoon feeling really low and feeling really sad and deflated. Mm. That's certainly, something that I'm experiencing now. So I definitely think that 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 raw emotion that comes for me is more in those blips of just like easy writing where it just falls out of you. <laughs> But I do also think they're always improved by going back and redraft, re-edit, redraft, re-edit, because I think those those bouts of writing can also be quite messy and need a lot of tidying up and need a lot of organisation and what stays and what goes and kill your darlings and all of that. Um, and I definitely, definitely, definitely am somebody who... Um, a forces myself to sit down and write even when I don't want to and I have no inspiration it's like you're just going to sit and you're write a thousand words if they're crap we never use them it doesn't matter you're still sitting and writing those words um, which is helpful because sometimes <laughs> those are actually surprisingly good and other times they go right in the trash um, but I yeah you know I redrafted 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 what a shame over and over and over and over again I probably did like gosh I don't know the exact number but it would be close to double figures if not double figures. Mm. Um, so yeah, I'm certainly not somebody who just 
straight away and off it goes. I, I, I work at it and I'm, and I'm an editor. You know, I started off in the publishing business by being an editor and I'm an editor by trade and I moved into agenting. But even as an agent, I think I'm very hands on with that kind of editing, IP development, the, the story, the characters, et cetera, with my own authors. So I can't help myself. Um, I want to talk a little bit about your career later, but let's yeah. just step back into the story for a minute because we mentioned briefly Constance and um, for any readers who haven't read What a Shame already, they won't know, but Constance is an old woman that Matilda goes and does a kind of volunteer program with and goes to her house and, and spends time with her as a kind of companionship um, volunteer program. So I'd love us if you could, I'd love it if you could tell us a bit more about how that relationship came to you because it's such a contrast to her her friendship group and her flatmate group so yeah how did how did that relationship come to you so I suppose I, I, somebody asked me once um in an interview about kind of like millennial like cliches and stereotypes and, and they were like this book is so kind of you know a lot of the writing or the story is centered on the experience of a young woman kind of in her, I don't know, mid twenties, early thirties or what have you. And how did you kind of avoid the cliche and stereotypes of the millennial experience? And I was, my response was kind of like, I feel like you just like go, you just go right into them. You just like walk straight into that stereotype and kind of punch it in the nose. And if you like acknowledge it so brutally and so, you know, you ram yourself into it, then that's the point of kind of, pulverizing it to an extent I think and the relationship with Constance was definitely informed by by that idea in a sense that I didn't want to just represent female friendship um as I'd seen it represented so many times before that just didn't sort of ring true and personally I think we're having two older sisters I've always sought the advice and the comfort and relationships with women who are further down the path than I am and I found those to be incredibly enriching and important relationships in my life so I knew I wanted Matilda to kind of have that experience I mean Constance is 84 so obviously it, there's, a, there's a huge age gap between them um and she off she you know she brings so much wisdom to the page as well and is and is the kind of rooted and, and grounded I think um and is a woman who you know here's two women Constance has lost her husband she's lost her children she's lost her parents Constance's entire life is grief everyone she's ever loved has died and she's you know nearing her own her own death as well and so if you put these two women together in a room one who's experiencing grief for the first time in her life and one who who's you know at the end of that has experienced a life full of grief what will these two women say to each other and how will they help each other and that was that was the thing that I wanted to explore and not just that kind of millennial female friendship where we're all looking at things through a similar lens and coming from the same kind of generational experience and echoing the same ideas at each other. I needed Constance to come in and cut through that and offer a different dimension, I think. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. 
With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. So you've talked a little bit about carving time out for yourself to be creative. So I was wondering what kind of writer you are, whether you're someone who is a bit of a scrappy writer, whether you're someone that sits down in the morning and says, okay, I'm going to bash out a thousand words. How does it work for you? I'm definitely um I'm definitely routined I guess I'm a habitual writer um in terms of like writing on the same day at the same time and just like I said kind of earlier kind of forcing myself to show up no matter no matter what um in the mornings absolutely like I'm not a scrappy like oh I'm just got a burst of inspiration I'm just gonna sit here and just bust out a thousand Mm -hmm. words definitely not like I need like my space. I like write to the same scent. This is such a weird thing, but also I think quite a handy tip. If you're moving around um, or you're not always able to write in the same place and it's hard for you to construct a creative space to write, which it definitely was um, for me when I was writing my first book, um, 
to just to have that smell to have that same scent or incense or candle or what have you and for me it's just like I smell that smell and I'm like oh right I'm like this is what I'm doing <laughs> and it just helps me really helps me get into it um you're not the first writer I've I've heard that's that's really big on scent so yeah I, I've definitely heard that before or, or making the same drink or some sort of ritual yeah yeah I think ritual really helps and I think it's hard it's really hard and some days you get up and you don't want to do it but I think if you can carve out that routine it's like in the same way of exercise right exercise can be really Mm. difficult to motivate yourself to do um but if you kind of can get yourself on that wagon and start doing it in a repetitive way you stop going oh I really don't want to go and do whatever Mm -hmm. it is and you just do it because that's what you do on a Monday. You just go to yoga. It becomes mm. you go into autopilot. And I think I trick myself into going into autopilot with my writing. Yeah, like you say, some days easier said than done, but definitely yeah. the right, <laughs> the right uh, attitude to have. So you've had such an incredible career, starting out as an editor and, and then moving on to becoming an agent. So was writing a novel? You said when you started writing, you you didn't necessarily know you were writing a novel, but did you always have that dream at the back of your mind then? Did you always know that you wanted to be a writer as well? <sighs> that's, that's a difficult question because I think the answer is both yes and no. So no, because people like me and didn't write books, people where I was from, you know, Newport didn't write books. I couldn't believe my luck that I got a job in publishing, you know, I scrambled and scrambled and scrambled and slept on friend sofas and tried desperately to do internships. And I had like doors shut, 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 shut in my face. You know, I almost gave up trying to get into publishing. Um, And I eventually got a publicity assistant role at publishers. Um, So even just, even taking the leap, I, I moved six months after taking the publicity assistant job, an editorial assistant position came up. And I applied for it. And even that was like a huge crisis of confidence where I was just like, well, I can't edit books. Like that's something that all of these kind of, you know, (laughs) posh, privately educated, intelligent (laughs) people did. Not me, the gobby Welsh one off the National Express, you know, it was, and it was, it was difficult to even get myself there to get to kind of imbibe that, uh, self-esteem that confidence that belief that I could do it and so then you know went on to editing and um I six months later I commissioned my first book which was Everyday Sexism by Laura Bates which did very well and then I was given incredibly well yeah so and so you know I kind of instilled that confidence by proving myself to myself over that period of time so I think it took me to get to a certain point in my career where I even said could you write a book you know, you've been helping people and guiding and you're, you're really good at that. You're, that's going well. Could you write one yourself? So if I'm honest, maybe somewhere in that little girl's mind, that would always have been a dream come true. But I would never, that wasn't my dream. To get in mm. publishing was dream enough, let alone to be someone who was writing their own work. Um, and I, you know, I built that confidence up. And also, you know, times, times are changing and there's a lot more conversations going on around um around that kind of thing now um so yeah yes and no (laughs) do you think that your job has made you a bigger critic of your work and or do you think it's done the opposite and shown you what's working in fiction what what's what's coming up or 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 has it it kind of increased that feeling of uh, imposter syndrome I don't know you tell me 
Yeah, I think that's, I think this is such an interesting question because I have friends who will rename, rename, remain nameless, who have literally said to me, like, I'm so sick of selling all of these like psychological thrillers for like six figures. It's ridiculous. They're not even that good. I'm just going to write one. I'm just going to write one. I'm going to get myself a six figure deal. I'm going to buy myself a, a flat. And they have. They've written into the genre that publishing's buying up hot and heavy and they've bought themselves their flats and they have really written to the market. And I have, you know, I actually do have a huge amount of respect for that. It's one way to go about it. Um, but for me, no, I don't see my writing as a commercial endeavor. I see like Bergstrom Studio as my job and my commercial kind of what pays my bills and pays my um, uh, my for my life. And then I see my writing as this like creative kind of special thing that I get to do on the side and I definitely wasn't kind of employing my understanding of the market and my knowledge of fiction to uh, write something that would that would have been able to break out if I had done that I definitely wouldn't have written this novel um because you know the, it's aimed at a certain kind of demographic I guess and specifically at women and not potentially a genre that's um kicking off although interestingly they, it did publish during the time of this kind of sad girl literature moment mm. which I don't think I could have foreseen I mean I I wrote What Shame I finished it a year before Covid started and then I sent it out during Covid um anonymously under a pseudonym to multiple different agents wow okay and then my agent also sent it out to editors under a pseudonym so I didn't use any of my connections my name my network to get published I got published in the exact same way any author mm. street would um anyone here who's aspiring to write their book would and that was absolutely essential for me because I needed to know that the book was getting commissioned and picked up because of the writing and the story and not because I had a reputation in publishing or you know indeed mm. someone could see it and go oh, bloody hell don't want to publish her don't like her at all <laughs> you know I, I hope not but it certainly could have been the case I, mean, I, I would imagine I'm not everyone's cup of cocoa but so yeah I just I I it, I don't know it's, it's been a much more kind of pure creative mm. personal endeavor for me um and maybe that will change as I write more books and if I want to you know apportion more time to it it's going to have to pay towards some of the bills but let's be honest like it can be really hard to make a living um as a writer and that's indeed why so many of the writers I represent as well have like multiple other revenue streams and things that they're doing and why so many writers today have to it's the mm. very very you know it's the minority of writers who are selling translations internationally across multiple books and continually having bestsellers and are selling even more than 10,000 copies like yeah. that the minority that's the exception that's not the rule um so I think it was helpful to have that realistic mindset. People get a publishing deal and they're like, oh my God, my life's going to change. I've got this book deal. I'm going to be the next kind of breakout, whatever. Mm. And that's not the case for the vast majority. And I think I was very mad. Do you think it's helped you be more realistic about your career? And, and I guess even things like numbers, because I think it's it's an industry where there is so much secrecy and... Yeah. Uh, <laughs> there's there's very little transparency in terms of money and yeah. sales figures and things like that and you often only hear about the 
the huge six-figure deals and you know it's been brought up to be made into a movie and and like you say that's not actually very common which is why it makes the why it makes headlines so do you yeah. think you're it's given you a, a a very realistic perception of of how potentially your career is going to go yeah I think so I, and, it, and that keeps me tempered which I think is good but on the other on the other side I kind of have to remind myself that I'm also allowed to to dream and I'm also yeah. allowed to get excited and I'm also allowed to you know I said to you um, earlier I've had three offers for the tv and film rights of what shame and never in my wildest dreams didn't even <laughs> think about it you know and to have my agent call me and say say that was just kind of what like I couldn't get mm. my head around it it's so exciting and so I I have to also allow myself to be like wow you know let myself and not go well because my mind goes well Abby there's lots of authors out there that have got six or seven books that have been optioned and how many of them <laughs> None. just because you've got a deal doesn't mean to get it made don't get too excited da, 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 da. and I and I sort of have been having this conversation with myself recently where I'm like no get excited get yeah, excited definitely. and allow yourself that moment mm. that do because that's important and that 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 pace that's what yeah. pays, you know yeah absolutely and I think because you know because you know how rare it is definitely get excited because you know how special it is so I can see I can see I think it's the same for every writer you're there's forever someone you're going to compare yourself to so it is about enjoying every little step along the way yeah definitely I couldn't agree with that anymore every small win's a win and should be celebrated so then tell us about your publishing consultancy and literary agency, Bergstrom Studio. Can you tell us how you support aspiring and emerging writers? Yes. So Bergstrom Studio, um, effectively, so after I worked as an editor for five years, I moved across um, it, it, to agent and I set up a literary agency for a management company and did that for five years and built it up into a, into a really successful business. And so I then got to a point of going, okay, I need to make more time for my writing, but I also need to reassess like what I'm doing because I love agenting. I get so much from it, but I also really love editing. And I love IP development and I love working with authors and kind of especially ones that are trying to get published or, or emerging and earlier on in their careers. So how, you know, how could I bring writer, editor, agent all under one roof and, 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 and have an offering? And that, of course, the answer to that was a publishing consultancy where I have a kind of small focus select list of authors that I work with and, you know, will see myself working with for decades and decades to come indeed like I represent Laura Bates as I mentioned earlier I published her at the beginning of my career so we've already been working together for over a decade and that's the kind of model for my agenting and then on the consultancy side um, we consult authors on all different things so from uh, you may be working on your second novel, but you're completely stuck. You've hit a wall and you just need somebody to kind of roll up their sleeves and get into it with you. So we do a lot with a lot of work with authors that are kind of stuck in that sense. Um, people who have an idea for a nonfiction, but they have absolutely no idea how to pull a nonfiction proposal together. What should be in there, you know, will help them develop their idea into something that the market will be receptive to and that we think would actually get signed by an agent. Um uh, yeah editing scripts memoirs you name it you know if you're writing something we've probably got a service that we could help um that, yeah that we could help you with 
Um, so that, so yeah, that's that's what we're doing on that side, and it's great because it means that actually I get to work with lots more authors and be spread across lots more projects, which I love and I find really inspiring and fills my cup. Um, so yeah, that's what we do, and we're a team of three now, which is exciting. It's myself, Megan Staunton, who's an agent who's currently still building her list, um, and then we've got Grace, who's our assistant kind of manages our social media and helps us do everything can't function without her <laughs> so I read a great bit of advice that you gave online which was write what you're afraid to write and I was wondering if you could expand on that a little bit more and you've already given us some great tips already but maybe you could give us two more of your best writing tips yeah so um the thing that you're most afraid to write write that which is a uh, um Naira Wahid um, quote from one of her poetry collections, an amazing, amazing writer. Um, and I just think that is such a good advice for early writers starting out. I guess it kind of links back to the kind, to, to the write what you know um, mentality as well. But I just think, again, for me, writing is about going to into the well of yourself and facing yourself and looking at what's there and what's dark and what's complex and what's difficult. And I think out of that comes the real kind of awe-inspiring, that writing where you sort of go, God, that's exactly how I felt, but I've never had anyone capture that in words before. Um, so that, that is, yeah, that really inspired me. And I always share that as a tip for, for young up and coming or indeed just aspiring writers. Um, I think the other things I would just say is uh, people are always so surprised when writing a novel. And obviously, Chloe, you will know this more than anyone. Writing a novel is not writing one book. It's writing six, seven, eight books. Like by the time you've redrafted, 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 you know, some writers, they write the first 80,000 words and then delete it. And they go into a new document and they start again from scratch. Others, they just rework, rework. I think people kind of vomit a draft out and go great and then they go to even like submit it or get their friends to read it or send it to agents and just like alarm bells that's the beginning of the process and you that's the, almost the easy bit and the real work is going back and rehashing 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 and I think you have to learn quite quickly that to write a great novel you're as much an editor of your own work as you are a writer of, of your of, of yourself um and then the other tip would just be I think consistency I think consistency, it doesn't matter if you can just give yourself an hour a fortnight or if you can give yourself kind of three days a week, just setting out those boundaries and showing up at the same time, just making yourself sit there and just giving yourself that, carve out that time, whatever you can give, whatever you can allow. And no matter what happens, just show up. And I think once you do that, it's that's half the battle. And with your favourite scent as well. And with your favourite scent, exactly. Find a candle that you like and whack it on and it'll it'll ease you. I'm very scent sensitive, so I'm sure there's a better word for that. So I was wondering now, thinking about readers, what other novels would you compare What a Shame to? I know I've had Chloe Ashby on the podcast and she's already said that her novel Wet Paint shares a similar space with your novel. So I was wondering if you can think of any kind of other comparisons. Um, not books so much, just, I don't know. I find like that's, I find that a really, really difficult question. Um, which is funny really, cause it's like, that it's my job to do that for other books. That's how you sell them. You come up with like a bridge. 
Um, but I, I don't know. I find that so hard. I mean, like I said, the sad girl lit kind of phenomenon that's taken off at the moment and the sort of like Eliza Clarks and my year of rest and relaxation and yeah, mm. wet paint, exploring that female trauma. Um, not that I would ever dare to compare myself to Otesha Mosbeg, but um, I think there are similarities in the, yeah, in the story and in the stories that's trying to be told with that, with that particular mm -hmm. work of hers. But somebody, Emma Gannon called it um, Girls Meets Practical Magic, which isn't a book comparison, but I do feel like that captures kind of the essence of what it's trying to do. I think that works. I do yeah. think that works. <laughs> So finally, are you able to share, you've mentioned already that you're working on another book, but are you able to give us a little teaser about what it's about or give us anything? Yeah, um, the next book is about sisters um, because I think that's just a, such a mind-bending, complicated, excruciating, but also amazing, amazing connection um so I want to write about the complexity of that relationship and these four sisters um so yeah it's 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 set across two timelines it's third person it's a lot more plot driven I think it's a kind of bigger in terms of the challenge it's a bigger challenge than, than what a shame and a, a bigger book in that sense but it feels like the, the right next step um so yeah I'm 20,000 words into it so <laughs> wish me luck that I make it to the end. Well, congratulations on What a Shame and I'm looking forward to reading whatever you write next, Abby. Thank you very much for coming on the podcast. Thanks, Chloe. Thanks for having me. That was Abigail Bergstrom talking about her literary novel, What a Shame, which is out now and available to buy. Thank you so much for listening. And if you've enjoyed this episode, please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Or if you've subscribed already, it'd be great if you could leave me a review. See you next time. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.